in the 11th chapter. Uh, the last time we had met with the college kids and studied, we, uh, we ran out of time when we got to this point. But we talked about uh, an under, a true understanding of the grace of God not only does not open the door for sin, but it, it motivates godliness. And like in Titus 2 and verse 11, we have the statement that the grace of God has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and wickedness in this present life. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10, mentioning that the greatest motivating force in his life was his understanding of the grace of God, so much so that he outdid even all the other apostles. And along with this thing of, of the law is, is getting the perspective that on the, or the grace I should say, is, is that on the one hand we are not saved by law keeping, we are saved by grace through faith. But law has never and never will be out the door. That we're not saved or our law has been nailed to the cross in the sense that we are not justified by law. But God's law is as perfect today as it was when the psalmist wrote that the law of the Lord is perfect in converting the soul. Or when the psalmist wrote that I am wiser than my enemies and I'm wiser than the, the ancient and I'm wiser than my teachers because through thy precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way, and thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path, and the entrance of thy word gives understanding. And Psalms 119, beginning with verse 97. And so that, that perfect law that is such a guide to life didn't just get up and go away. And I think one of the things that we're not doing effectively in teaching young people, and, and, and I think that the biggest mistake is made is that we teach the law. We actually teach, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, don't lie, etc. But it's sometimes taught within a framework of, you know, that the Bible says it's wrong, so it's there, therefore it's wrong, and don't do it. And I think the most important thing to get across in somebody's mind, and I know this is when I became very respectful of law, is when you begin to have it impressed on your mind that the law is absolutely, inherently right. God doesn't just say don't do something, but he says don't do it or do it because it is the, the right thing and that doing it brings blessings and, and not doing it brings uh, consequences and deviating brings consequences. That, that there's no getting away from the transgression of the law, that you can literally make your life something that is, that is beautiful and pleasant and enjoyable in many ways, or something that is a curse based on your attitude to the law. Uh, this particular example, uh, Chuck, you've been working with uh, young people, and I think this would be good, uh, it makes a real good study for young people. In fact, uh, this was uh, uh, when we were you told me initially when we had the retreat up there that we was going to have one service just for the young and then we didn't do it because uh, I forget the reasoning now there wasn't enough in that age category but this is what I was going to use and it makes a perfect example of this the perfection of God's law and that is uh, an incident in the life of, of David in showing that God's law is absolutely right and when we deviate from God's law God doesn't come along and wave any magic wand over us and zap us in some way or make life miserable, but that all comes with a natural consequence and there's no way to stop it. And, and in the same way, if even an atheist out here is willing to put into practice certain of these moral principles, that atheist will reap the benefit uh, in this life in the same way that if an atheist out here decides not to smoke and a Christian decides to smoke, that atheist will reap lungs accordingly, and the Christian will reap lungs accordingly. And, and the same is true when it comes to moral principles. That's why that many times, you know, they'll say so-and-so out there doesn't go to the church or they're not a Christian and they're a better person than some people that are. Well, that is true a lot of times because there are people in the world many times that based on their own observation of life 
have, have come to the conclusion that honesty is the best policy, uh, or that some other moral is the best, and they adhere to it and, and they reap benefits from it. And on the other hand, there are those that, that even when they become Christian, seem to, to not ever embrace this idea or never fully understand it, uh, that this law is absolutely perfect and I cut my nose to spite my face when I deviate from it. Let's look at the incident here, because we're all familiar with it, of David and, and Bathsheba, and go on through the 12th uh, chapter. Let's read it, and then we'll begin to look at some things that actually happen here. Mark, let's start with you uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, and just read on down a bit, and then move on to Mark, and then move, move on around until I ask you to pause. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabath. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam? and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and the... The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open field. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him, withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was dead. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed... Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, didn't a woman throw up, throw an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in the bez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot the arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this is to encourage say this to encourage Joab. When your eyes wife heard that her husband was dead, 
She mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord said, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, and he had brought, he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank in his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from killing, taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to the inn. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. That is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the, from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by, by doing this, by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down, struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I did but I will do this thing in broad daylight, daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house, and he spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child is still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Okay, now, look at, come on into the 13th chapter, uh, verse 1. 
Ammon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Okay, the end result was, in verse uh, 14, he raped her. Last statement in verse 14. Uh, Amnon raped Tamar, the sister of Absalom. Then after he raped her, he hated her. Okay, then Absalom come, becomes aware of what happens. And then we find that... Uh, uh, Absalom sets up a situation and he tells them to strike Ammon and kill him and so Ammon is killed by Absalom okay then in verse 37 Absalom fled and went to, to another place with King Geshur alright then Absalom returns to Jerusalem there is very strained relationship with him and David he, they're not even on speaking terms then in chapter 15, you have the conspiracy of Absalom against David, and he tries to win the people over, uh, actually gets an army up, comes into the city. Uh, David flees. Uh, the end result, David is cursed, mocked, made fun of. Uh, Absalom lays with the concubines of David up before all the people. And then before it's all over, Absalom is killed. Well, then after Absalom is killed, uh, David gets to be an old man. There's all kinds of infighting and jockeying for power as to who's going to succeed him. Before it's all over, there's fighting. And then Solomon winds up, but Solomon is king. But Solomon is not king very long until Solomon has to take the life of another one of David's sons. Okay, so let's go back now and, and look. Uh, back at the 11th chapter. First of all, uh, working our way back after David's sin, look at the statement in uh, chapter 12. Uh, in verse 11, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, I will do this thing. Uh, David said to Nathan, I've sinned. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. But because of doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. Uh, he also mentioned in verse 10, look at verse 10. As a result of what David did, the sword would never depart from his house. Because he had despised the, the word of the Lord. Okay, look at what happened. David uh, commits adultery, has a man put to death, and then it comes out, he confesses, and God forgives him. Okay, and not only does God forgive him, if, if you get to heaven, you're going to be with David. But he also tells him that, David, the sword will not depart from your house, and that the this, this same type of thing is going to happen to you, and that these consequences are going to take place. Uh, all, the re all the rest of your life. Remember, God's already forgiven David. God's not doing anything to David. He's already forgiven David. But David has set in motion a lot of things that's going to happen. David, as we read his life, his weakness was, was like Solomon, only a little different. Uh, but David uh, had a weakness for the ladies. And he multiplied wives to himself, and he had children, and just as he incident with Bathsheba, uh, he thought as king that he had the right to Bathsheba if he wanted her. Well, then the first thing that happens is the child dies. Put yourself back there in the situation when Bathsheba finds out that she's pregnant, okay? And her husband comes in, and they all know that under the law of Moses, that Bathsheba and David should have been stoned to death. There was the death penalty for adultery under the law of Moses. And David in his prayer of forgiveness begs God to forgive him of blood, of, and to keep him from blood guiltiness. Blood guiltiness was the law that stated that uh, with murder or an act of adultery, another family member was to take the life of that person involved. And so David knew that by the law he stood condemned and deserved to die. Can you imagine the, the anguish and the tension that Bathsheba lived with during that period of time when she's pregnant and they're trying to get Uriah to come in and to sleep with her 
and Uriah will not do it. And then she, they then, after not doing it, put yourself in Bathsheba's place. Not only are they not successful, and all this time she's pregnant, but then a period of time passes, and she actually finds out that they've had to kill Uriah. And here's Uriah, who was an obviously good person, an obviously faithful and decent individual who loved his wife and loved David and, and, and had all the right qualities and all. Well, then can you imagine the emotional turmoil that uh, she's going through and not only this happening, but then Uriah not being able to deceive him, but not only could she not deceive David, deceive Uriah and get him to go in and then convince him it was his child, but the end result of what happens is it becomes even more aware of the integrity of Uriah, that this man has just in tremendous integrity. I mean, it's one thing to do something wrong to a person, but then in the process to have to come to grips with the fact that, hey, this is no ordinary person. They have, this, I've wronged a person with just tremendous integrity. And then she has to become aware of the fact that David has Uriah killed. Well, can you imagine? And so all the time she's carrying this child, she's going through all that tension, all that anguish, all that guilt for the full time, and then finally has to mourn the death of Uriah, and all of this takes place while she's carrying the child. And the child is born, and he died. I don't believe personally that God did anything miraculous to kill that child. That uh, the, the child died, I believe it was punishment for, uh, for David's sin, uh, they go ahead and they'll have another one. But notice what else happens. The child dies, then they go ahead and they, they have another one, and they, get, they get married, have another child. Well, David has uh, married these various wives, he's fathered children. Well, obviously, there's, there's no way that David can be a good husband to all these wives and a good father to all these children. I mean, we know the problems of, of getting straight in one, one marriage situation without trying to do it with a plurality of them. We know the problems. I had six children, and uh, if you've only had a few, you know the problems of just getting a few children to, to really be fair with one another and to try and convince them that you're never being partial and you're always fair. I mean, you really have to work at that. All right? And you, you can see in Jacob's family that uh, what happened to Joseph was because Jacob was a very partial individual and, he, and the, the other brothers resented it. Well, can you imagine having a situation where your, your dad is the king and yet you've got sons of all of these different wives? And Solomon's not the oldest son uh, by, by a long ways. And so here we have all these different wives. And can you imagine the jealousy and the infighting that there was and, and as a result of that kind of thing? Well, then again, a, a natural thing happens. Uh, here's uh, Amon, and uh, here's this Tamar, who's not his sister as a result of being the daughter of his mother, but it's just another one of David's many children through all his women. So he falls in love with her. Normally, see, he could have fell in love with her and he could have had her. By, he could have married her. Well, see, he could not, the problem is, he can't marry her in the law of Moses because she's too close to kin. And so normally, it'd been okay, he could have fell in love and, and they, could have, they could have married, but he can't. But yet he's in that situation, so what does he do? He rapes her. Well, when he rapes her, Absalom, her brother, hates him, and the first chance he gets, Absalom has him killed. Well, then Absalom was really David's favorite son. He really loved Absalom, and they had a real close relationship. But now, after Absalom does this, he breaks the relationship. But David is supposed to kill Absalom, or have him put to death. But David, deep down, knows he's the real problem anyway, that he caused it all. And so he doesn't want to do it. So Absalom goes out here, and they're separated for a period of time. Uh, Job gets tired of seeing David mourn and mourn and mourn and, and never have any laughter or happiness about him. So he finally gets Absalom home. When he comes back to Jerusalem, David still can't talk to him. He's still, still disturbed. He doesn't know how to act. He knows, according to the law of Moses, that Absalom should be, should be put to death. He also knows he's the real culprit. So Absalom gets tired of the whole process. David's getting to be an old man. 
And so Absalom leads a rebellion against his dad. And David, rather than kill Absalom or fight him, flees. And then leaves Joab to do the dirty work, but he doesn't want Joab to kill Absalom. And Joab does. And so now David's favorite son that he felt so close to has been killed, another son has been killed, and a daughter has been raped. Well then, he is getting real old now, and he knows that God has chosen Solomon to be the one to replace him. Solomon is the one that's, that's going to replace him. But the next in line through David's marriages is another son. And so here we have a situation of all the jockeying for power, and Solomon comes in, but then the other son is killed. So I'm saying that from the moment, on the one hand, David is forgiven. But from the time that David committed adultery with Bathsheba to the time he died, the man never knew peace of mind. He suffered the consequences. And even at the end, you read that David loved God with all his heart and he served God except in the incidents. And it goes back to Bathsheba. And so he had all that probably and all that misery in his family. In other words, God forgave him way over here. But the forgiveness of God did not keep the consequences of all of those things that had been set in motion as a result of the sin of God. And not only can we easily see that all the sword not departing, I can remember when I first heard that taught on it years back as a young person, it was almost like that, you know, God did something to cause the sword never to depart from David's house and all. But like we've noted on the law before, if God's got to do something, that doesn't prove that the law is right. It just simply proves that God's strong enough to make you obey it whether you want to or not. And that's it. And when we read the story, we can see the natural unfolding of the event itself. I personally don't believe that God did one single solitary thing uh, to David, and I don't believe that God killed that baby. Uh, I believe God, God did it and took the life in the sense that and when I go back and I look at that situation, and I can add that for nine months she had to carry that with all kinds of, that baby with all kinds of guilt, all kinds of anguish, and all kinds of heartache. And to show you how some of that can get to you, one of the best examples that I've had in my own experience with uh, this kind of thing, of, of what the mind can do when you really are guilty, uh, this lady, uh, Barbara and I, remember the, the couple in Jessup that I counseled with this lady, and uh, she had been to a couple of psychiatrists, and she, had, she and her husband were coming to church, and she was somebody that had been out of church, and then had repented and come back in, she and her husband. But anyway, she was breaking out in hives. Uh, she would just break out all over her body. Uh, her, she would hyperventilate. She had all kinds of problems, you know. She was real nervous and tense. And she was, they went to the doctor and they examined her and couldn't find a single physical thing wrong with her, not a single solitary thing. But then finally, it, it, what came out is that years back, she had had an affair on her, with, on her husband. And the guy she had the affair with had moved away and he had been gone for a number of years. And then since that time, she had uh, come back into church and she and her husband were in the process of, you know, trying to get their marriage together and everything like that. Well, right during that period of time that she's, all this begins to happen, the guy she had the affair with moves back into town and contacts her. And so now, see, the husband never does know. And here she thought, you know, these years have passed. He went out of town, so that's good. But now he comes back. And so now she has to live with the fact that what is going to happen if her husband learns of the affair that she had with this guy. And so she's experiencing all the mental anguish, all the guilt and everything like that because she don't know what in the world that her husband will do uh, if he learns of this particular event. And so and then she's wanting to know, do I tell him? And because and, she didn't know what in the world he would do if, if she told him. And then she's scared on the other hand it would come out. But I would guess there's probably no telling. The, the book, Heart Diseases and Their Cure, gives a number of examples of different things that just literally happen to your body when you do wrong things, and as a result, you experience all kinds of wrong emotions within yourself. So we look at that, and you can see that David suffered for the rest of his life because of that mistake. 
Alright, now, in other words, God doesn't say don't commit adultery for any reason other than to spare us all the heartaches. It's wrong. It just simply will not work. And when God tells us to have one man, one woman until death do you part, he's not trying to impose anything on us. I don't believe it's any accident that all under the law of Moses that God allowed them to do their own thing and have as many wives as they wanted that we can go back and look and see the consequence of that kind of thing. Alright, now let's go back to the very beginning when David committed adultery and let's also note some other things there. Uh, look at verse 2. He walks up on the roof of the palace and the roof he saw a woman bathing and she was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. Okay, now from the very first, what are some few things we can note in that second, a few things we learn in that second chapter? He could have turned away and, and certainly not sent far. He could have put... He's, okay. He's obviously tempted. Okay. Now, is there anything wrong with being tempted? Okay. You can be tempted, but then the, he hadn't sinned when he was tempted. And so he was tempted, and in his mind he knows that the law says thou shalt not commit adultery. He knows there's even the death penalty. He should have turned away, right? So he had to linger long enough to allow lust to conceive in his own heart. And then, of course, we have this act. Well, what else can you see there? David was tempted. Now, one thing we can say about Bathsheba, she was not purposely tempted. She's unaware, by all indication, that David is even up there, but what else can you see in this situation? David is definitely tempted and he doesn't walk away from it. He walks, he pursues it, doesn't he? Rather than walk away from it, uh, so David is like the person that uh, that here you you know certain type of uh, things are out there in a, in a particular area that may be tempting to you, but you say, no, it's wrong, I'm not going to do it, or I'm not going to get that. Uh, or you can actually, as a result of knowing they're there and available, you can pursue it. And it's your choice. And, and so David pursues it. But what else can you see there uh, in that second chapter? Second chapter? Or second chapter? verse. Mm. What about the male-female situation when it comes to sexuality? Are you talking about the fact that he was stimulated visually? Right. In other words, it's obvious, a plain statement there. The writer doesn't even feel the need to explain that, does he? Uh, he just says that uh, he saw the woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And the next thing we know, we have David giving in to his temptation there. In other words, he wasn't tempted until he saw this visually. And then he had a choice to make. He was tempted, but then he gave in to it. But we can, we can also see that when it comes to the, what kind of a man is David, he's already been identified as a man after God's own heart, isn't he? And we know that it's, that it's not right to characterize him as, as, a, as a person that just willfully does wrong all the time because David will eventually repent and he'll go to heaven. He'll die. And, and for the most of his life, in fact, except for this mistake here and the things involved with it, David was a far better than average person, wasn't he? I mean, he had tremendous faith in God. Uh, he Look at all the statements that he wrote in the Psalms concerning the law of God. And so a very spiritual person, wrote a lot of Psalms, a tremendous faith in God. And yet, uh, in this situation, so uh, I point that out because... I have real problems uh, today with Christians who seem to, uh, to try and indicate that, it, that modesty has no meaning whatsoever, that it really doesn't matter how we dress, that, uh, you know, that it's just a matter of, of custom, that, uh, that the, about the thing, obviously, the male is visually oriented. In fact, that's why that all through the centuries there has always been so much more emphasis on 
uh, female dress and everything that a male because it's it's obvious to everyone that he that he is visually oriented. It, it's I don't think it's any accident that when it talks about dressing modestly, obviously this would apply to the male, but he addresses the female uh, in 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 the situation. But I don't know how anybody can read that and not see that uh, that uh, the male is visually oriented, and so if that is true with Bathsheba then it seems to me you could say that that if an attractive lady walks around in some of the things in the the short shorts the uh, the bikini bathing suits and all that kind of thing that they the difference between them and Bathsheba is she honestly I mean it wasn't her fault that Dave was up on the rooftop and he just happened to be looking down but these people are actually doing that and so they are putting themselves I'm saying if it's a Christian girl she's actually putting herself in a position of willfully being tempted to guys and I think this is something we don't address and I think uh, I think it's we're looking at it from the standpoint of mature people uh, getting the information down to communicate with young people because nobody's doing it and, and these so-called youth ministers out there they're not doing this kind of thing. They just hop right in and go swimming with them or shorting with them or, or whatever it is. They're not doing uh, that kind of thing. But it, it is something that really needs to be dealt with here. And these, uh, remember Jesus, when he talked about adultery, he said that whosoever lusted in his own heart. And so it is something that to be concerned about in Christian girls and guys. I don't think guys ought to place themselves in the situation. I mean, we know those specific situations where the ladies go and specifically do not wear clothes. And, uh, and the ladies know those situations too. And it seems to me that Christians, male and female, ought to be a light in this society that we live and, and we really are not. I mean, there's very, very few that pay any attention to this thing of modesty today. All right, now, it's hard to tell from this context whether did Bathsheba, as you said, and she um, she came to him and he slept with her. Do you think that she, from other passages, I can't recall any right now, but it's hard to know whether she was flattered by the fact that the king had asked or whether she knew she had no choice because the king asked, so she had to do that. Okay, but did she really have to? I don't know. He's king, don't you? Well, did she have to? She might have. I well, I mean, do you have to commit adultery? No, but I'm saying since he, he was didn't king, her. could he have done something to her? Well, I'm saying though, does that still mean that she had to? I don't know. I guess not. That's what I'm saying. That he didn't. He did. There's no statement. That, like over here, for example, it says that uh, Amnon raped Tamar. Mm -hmm. it, it sure doesn't say that David raped her. You know that he sent for her and she came, and uh, my indicate. And then the baby died. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how she would feel the guilt or anguish or anything if it was strictly the act of uh, uh, David in the situation. But uh, my thinking would be what you had said initially. I think she was probably pretty flattered that the king uh, sent for her. And by the way, did David do anything that would be wrong in his day in any other land? The king could have anybody he wanted in any other place. But by the way, under the law of Moses, this wasn't true, was it? The, the king was to was was to uh, servant of the law, and it was they had a constitution that was the law of Moses. So the the king of Israel, he could do things, but if he broke the law, it was just like Nathan come and rebuke David. David didn't have the right to do this, and David knew it at the time, and so. Bathsheba. So we find on the one thing, and by the way, I think here's a a difference between the male and female that comes out both ways there. The male is visually oriented, uh, and I'm not saying the women's not visually oriented to a certain degree, it's just nowhere near the, the thing is with a male, but uh, 
the female is often uh, very flattered uh, that certain males would would notice them and all it was interesting to me as Barbara and I was watching something the other day with uh, we come in and with Magic Johnson and they was asking him questions and whatnot and he was talking about all these relationships that he had you know that he doesn't have any idea where he got the age but he said sometimes there was two or three or four or as many as six at a time but then one thing he pointed out he says he didn't and you know by the way he he accepted that conduct as being immoral and wrong and that he suffered the consequence of it he didn't defend the conduct or anything and he said he's speaking against it now but what he did say he said he did not pursue those ladies and he's talking about the professional athletes said that when he would go to Los Angeles and Chicago and all these cities that these ladies were all there and they were waiting on them and they would actually go up to their room. They'd try to find out what room they was going in and it would actually go up to the room. They didn't pay them or, or anything. It was just a matter of, of having relations with a real prominent, famous individual. And he said that, uh, that it was them asking him and said he even told them he had no desire to marry them. The fact this girl that he's married to they, they've been, they've been uh, engaged before and almost married. They've been together for 14 years. And she had told every one of them that she was the only girl for him. And if he ever married, it would be her. And that he had no desire for anything except a sexual relationship, period, with them. Nothing else. In fact, he said he never even spent the night with one of them. So they came up. It was strictly a sexual act. And they left. And he made it clear that he didn't want them to spend the night. He had no desire to even spend the night with them. But yet, that just having relations with somebody that was that prominent and wealthy and admired and everything, that there were gals that would do that. And he said that, and what's true with him was true with others, what was others also. Uh, okay, now, look at what we see also. We, we move on down and we see that that one sin leads to another sin. Normally, we do, it wouldn't be right to characterize David as a liar, would it? But yet he lied. And because a lot of times when we do something that's wrong, then we, it's so terrible that even if we're not a liar, that it's, it's just too terrible to admit, and so we wind up lying. And so David lied. And then what David does next just seems totally out of character, and that he's going to have Uriah put to death. By the way, what do you, is there a, any word that might characterize all of this? I mean, first the adultery, the lying, now he's going to have Uriah put to death, and he's going to take uh, uh, Bathsheba as his wife. Uh, any word that might take care of every bit of this? There might be several words that one word would. Selfish. Okay. The word selfish, that obviously... Uh, Nathan, he was told by God that he despised the word of God. In other words, he did not esteem God's law as much as he esteemed himself. And so, the, very selfish. He wasn't thinking of Bathsheba. He wasn't thinking of Uriah. He wasn't thinking of God. He wasn't thinking of the nation of Israel. In fact, look at another result of this and from God's standpoint. Look at verse 14 of chapter 12. He said... You have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. As a result of the sin, Paul in Romans 2, 24 and 25, speaking to the Jews in his day, said the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the way you Jews are living. That, uh, that we can see when a Jimmy Swaggered, and he's just, we know that we can multiply Jimmy Swaggers and Jim and Tammy, but when, when people that profess to be Christians commit these overt sins like this, then Christianity is made to look ridiculous because we're the ones that are in the business of actually condemning sin all the time and trying to call people to a, a better way. And so he says that uh, the enemies of God showed utter contempt. Uh, as a result of what David had done. David had done something that was, in having Uriah put to death, apparently, that was looked down on by, by even others. Now, another thing happened here that we didn't go further on. Remember, Joab is the one that David had put this guy in the battle and then back off. 
And so Joab has been a tremendous servant of David, but he's never been a real strong spiritual person by a long shot. But for, he's in David's family. He's been a real servant. But from this point on, you begin to see something in Joab. Joab doesn't pay a lot of attention to David from this point on. Uh, in other words, that David has lost his power of authority over Joab because of what Joab knows about David. And David gives him a specific command not to kill Absalom. Joab kills Absalom. And not only kills Absalom, but when David cries about it, he comes back and re rebukes David very strongly for, for showing any emotion or crying or anything of that nature. I mean, you'd think the way over Judea. And remember, uh, he's now got to unite all of the tribes under him. And Amasa is the general of Saul's army. And so he comes to David and is going to make an agreement uh, with David to, to give all of the other tribes to David. And as he's leaving, uh, Joab kills him. Uh, and what he did was wrong. David condemned it. He cried. He mourned and everything. But he didn't do anything to Joab. And all from that point on, it's, it's as if Joab is just somebody that's out of control. And he talks back to David. And it's as if he has equal power with David. But we have him in a situation where whether he's lost respect for David or whether he just knows so much that David no longer can control him, I don't know. You know, we can only speculate. All I know is that from this point on, Joab is an individual that seems to be just as strong as David, uh, if not stronger sometimes. He talks back to David. He puts him down. And he doesn't mind David or do what he asks. Uh, and this was not, this David that tolerated all of this in Joab is not the David that initially became king uh, up, up to this point in time. So looking at it, what we've been trying to see in this is that God's law is right. And David broke the law and committed adultery. And as a result of his lifestyle, his permissive lifestyle, and, and culminating in an adultery uh, situation with Bathsheba, David set in motion all kinds of consequences in his life that he never could escape. And even though he repented, and even though God forgave him, he simply never could escape that. Now, where I think this, you can go on if you're working with young people and dealing with this, you can then go into the examples of uh, the young girl that gets pregnant uh, outside of marriage that God will God loves her, God will forgive her, she can go to heaven, but she won't escape the consequence. The, all the consequence that's going to come with that, she will not escape. Uh, we can see in uh, uh, a person can live a sexually permissive life, don't get AIDS and then pray to God and think God's going to wipe it away. The consequence is going to be there. And the same with any other things that might happen. And I think what happens here, that the Old Testament is full of examples of other sins in disobedience to other laws of God, whether it's uh, the misuse of alcohol or lying or whatever it may be, not loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, whatever it may be. And you can read the context of the story and you can see the full consequences that come. And it's also full of individuals who obey God and the blessings that come their way. Now, let's look back uh, and notice still another thing on this thing with David. We mentioned that on the one hand, the male is visually oriented. And so we, we look at David and we say, well, why did God make David that way? By the way, this is the argument of the world. Uh, why did God, obviously there couldn't be anything wrong with it because God, God made man uh, that way. Uh, but when you think of, look at David there, and he is tempted, and he goes ahead and sins, but then look in the same chapter, you've got Uriah, who is her husband. And Uriah comes home, and he's been away in battle for a long time, and he refuses to go in and even spend the night with his wife because his conscience is bothered by the fact that the other guys are out in the field, and it's not right for him to be there with his wife. And, and he has that so indelible, this, this integrity and this consciousness is so imprinted on his mind that even when David gets him drunk, he goes down there and lays in front of the door, but he will not go in and lay with his wife. 
So what we see, this whole, I'm saying that this whole business of people sinning, and then it's like I couldn't control myself. And, and see, what the male has done is perpetuate this lie that his, his sexual drive is some real strong thing that he just simply not, cannot control, and that's nonsense. God doesn't give us anything that we can't control. I mean, if we sin, then we, we sin, but God hasn't made us in such a way that we've got some strong sexual drive or some other or any other type thing that we just simply can't control. And so obviously, if Uriah, out of his integrity of heart and his own conscience, can refuse to go in and lay down with his own wife, David, who has a multitude of other ladies that he already has his concubines and all, surely could have refrained himself from committing adultery here. And also, if Uriah cannot have relations with his own wife because of his conscience and his integrity because of the situation, then I have a hard time believing that, uh, that anybody else, any other man, cannot make that decision anytime he wants to. That no matter what the situation, that uh, Paul makes the statement that in whatever way we're tempted, God always provides a way out, that I believe anybody, uh, if he does that sin, then he, he needs to come to grips with it and at least admit it's a free it's something that he did of his own decision and don't blame it on God. Another example is uh, Joseph uh, when he was pursued by the wife of Potiphar and refused to have relations with her and actually wound up going to jail in the process. And so that by looking at Joseph and looking at Uriah we can see that, that don't just look at David and say, well, you know, God made him that way. And that uh, they're good examples that whatever desire is there is one that we have control over. And, it, and it's none that, that there is no excuse for a man to be very out of control. Now, the reason I think this is important when you deal with young people, I really believe that a lot of the sinning in this area that takes place with young people is that we perpetuate this myth that and, and men like to try and convey this as part of their macho thing, that they've got this just real strong uh, desire all the time that they just have absolutely no control over. Well, as we can see here, males are visually oriented. They do have a sexual drive. But as we can see from Uriah and also from Joseph, that uh, God hasn't given any one of us anything that we can't control at, at any time. And I think that makes good to... And when you look at Uriah and Joseph, you can see that their control was based on what they believed in their mind. That they honestly had right principles in their mind that they deeply believed. And I think of such words that, you know, receive with meekness the engrafted word, it will save your soul. That, uh, that if God's law, remember he said to David, you have despised my law. You didn't esteem it at this time. That David was selfish. And, he, uh, and that's his real problem with selfishness. He esteemed himself. Remember it says love, don't say, it doesn't say love your neighbor, it says love your neighbor as yourself. David esteemed himself over Uriah and over everything else and over God. And so his real problem was selfishness. And as a result of it, on the other hand, Joseph said, I will not sin against God and I will not sin against uh, uh, my master. And Uriah says, I won't do this with the other guys out in the field because it's not right. And so, in a summation, what I see in Uriah is simply an unselfish person that esteemed other people at least equal or higher than himself. And in Joseph, you see this same type of individual too. And I think one of the most important characteristics that we can get people to grow in spiritually is unselfishness. That, uh, that we're capable of all of these things as long as we have a, an attitude towards our life where we esteem ourselves above other people and especially above, above God or His Word. Any other observations that anybody else wants to make? Is this verse uh, that talks about the sword will never depart from your house? Is that, is that the verse that, that people use to say that the, the the Jewish people will always be in war, or is it they're different? They wars? do. They misuse it. Um, they um, it it could be. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've always heard that that yeah. the Jews will always 
be in war and stuff like that. I mean, if people say that that comes from the Bible, but I, I don't, I don't remember ever, you know, anybody telling me where that comes from. I was just wondering if that's the verse that they use, or, or if there's others, or if that's really. I don't intriguing. know of any specific verse on that, Mark. Unless it could be that. Uh, um, it obviously would be. You've a heard that. Oh, the uh, the uh, some of those statements though that applied to the Jews before they were destroyed and the destruction of Jerusalem and and the downfall of the temple and everything, people had used those passages to promote that kind of thing against the Jew all through the centuries to the end of the world. You know that which in reality applied applied to that particular context. But I mean, just like that statement there, that uh, I think that's pretty obvious in the, in the context. Well, another one is you mentioned that verse that uh, I don't know exactly where it is, or I'll just paraphrase it. That somewhere that says that David, in all things, David did did right, except for in the case of right. Uriah the Hittite. Well, is that just? I mean, obviously, that's not a true statement if you're if you're talking about it technically because you can go through and see all these little things that he did that oh yeah but the difference uh when you ride Hittite you had a you have a willful premeditated sin. In other words David made some mistakes through ignorance and he had his he, you know his shortcomings and things like that. But this was a willful premeditated sin and it was, uh, and it led to actually not only adultery but murder. But see, under the law of Moses, adultery and murder were both penalized with the death penalty. Well, you remember the guy that that um, uh, cursed at David and mm -hmm. and Shimmy. and then and then uh, David, uh, when he transferred his power to Solomon, he he pretty much told him to take care of that guy, and then Solomon uh, had him killed. Well, After he didn't really, uh, but he gave him a chance to live, and he told him he would have to stay in the confounds of Jerusalem and all, and he was not to go out, but he really told him it was to keep an eye on him and don't trust him. And in other words, here this guy was a servant of David, and then when David's getting run out of town, he really curses him. Well, then David comes back victorious, and all of a sudden he's real humble again and everything. Well, David doesn't want to kill him, at the time, he could have. In fact, uh, that uh, you know, they he could have actually killed him, but he didn't. But what he's really doing is telling Solomon to keep an eye on him, and so Solomon tells him to stay within the confines of Jerusalem and not to leave. And so when he did leave, then Solomon had him killed. But it was uh, what come across to my mind is that here's, here's somebody that uh, you know that you better really watch that he could be a real troublemaker when he takes his life. But even on something like that, he's been cursed by this person and all, that uh, it, it's hard, I don't, it's really, really pretty hard to conjure up a worse thing than David does over here. I mean, he doesn't just, it's not like a dover, he, he then has the man put to death, a very good man, and then it's going to walk right out of the, the whole situation, but it definitely comes up. And another thing to keep in mind that we know, obviously, David, is a sinner like all of us, you know, and it, like you said, his mistakes that he made, no. But look at the space that the writer devotes to this. And how do you, and then when you think about it, how do you understand the rest of David's life without this? Because he's a man after God's own heart, he has this tremendous faith in God, uh, everything is going good for him up to this point. I mean, he just, uh, he's come out on top, he keeps coming out on top, and then all of a sudden, uh, this happens, and all that space is devoted to it, and David has a miserable rest of his life. You know, just a, a lot of problems. I think it makes a good uh, case when studying with uh, young people and really impressing in their mind that, you know, that uh, the consequences of sin itself and the rightness of God's law. I really believe the key, part of the key uh, to getting people to respect laws is getting it fixed in their mind that the law is actually for my good 
and that to the degree that I deviate from it, there are going to be consequences, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. How, how do you define the law? I mean, when you say the law, I mean, I know there's a lot of rules and, and regulations and everything, but, but do you separate, I mean, are you just talking about specific ones or just God's inherent qualities or? I believe all laws revolve around the principle of love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Paul said that love fulfills the law because love does no ill to a brother. In Romans, the 13th chapter, if you love somebody, you don't murder them, you don't lie about them, uh, you don't uh, envy them, uh, you don't commit adultery with their mate, you don't covet their possessions or anything. So he said love fulfills the law and really, in those statements, he's just simply telling you things that, uh, that uh, you know, happen when people don't love one another. And just like, obviously, David, at least at this point, didn't love anybody but himself. You know, it, it, when, that, when that sin is, is committed, that's his number one thing. But uh, the principles in the Ten Commandments I believe are eternal truths, and they've always been there. And the same within the uh, New Testament, all of those statements of right and wrong revolve around the principle of love. And then this, like he said, that to to whatsoever you would that that somebody do to you, do do you likewise to them. That on this hang all the law and the prophets. This principle of treating others the way you would want to be treated if the situation were reversed will handle all kinds of, of conduct. Well, but like for instance, you know, we're, we're told to, you know, revere, you know, the, the, the authorities of the country. And so they, they set laws out, okay? Let's say like the speed limit, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you go over the speed limit, then you're breaking the law. Right. But, I mean, would that be... Well, you, you, different than, than well, you can, uh, the law is there for a reason. There's a difference in man-made laws in that man-made laws are not necessarily always right. Now, I'm not arguing with speed limits. I think they're good. But I'm saying man-made laws sometimes are right and sometimes are not. And that's why they have to be amended and changed. It's because it, uh, they're not always. But what happens to a person that makes a habit of speeding out here? Eventually, it's going to catch him. I mean, the speed limit is not set by the state to take the fun out of driving. It's set to save lives, and uh, and so the and it's a pretty logical thing. Uh, the speed limit out here is what is it, 45 or 55? 45. 45. I think 45 is personally that is all you could uh, drive safely in a consistent way on this road out here. they got so many little roads coming to it, and there's so many little old hills and so many turns that if you go much over 45, and I think when they set that law, the policemen don't enforce 48 or 50. In other words, they, they allow for the fact that you could slip over or something like that. And nobody's going to get a ticket for doing 50 when it's 45. And so, but I'm saying that when you get much over that, up there around 55 in a 45 zone, and you've got all these businesses and houses and people pulling out, I'd say if you do it consistency, your chances mathematically of having an accident go up dramatically. What I'm saying is, though, is if, if you have a legalistic mind and you go over 45, then you, I mean, you feel like you're sinning and you feel guilty. I'm saying that you can, I mean, you can, you can, you can get in your mind to an extent to every little single penalty thing that you do that, you know, you end up with guilt all the time for, you know, trying to, you know, do these little bitty rules. Well, I'm not talking about uh, everything. Well, if you I sin, mean, you should feel guilt. Uh, just like anybody that commits adultery should feel guilt. If they steal, they should feel guilt. If they lie, they should feel guilt. 
talking about line steel and stuff. I'm talking about little stuff like that. Well, but see, I don't necessarily think it's little if uh, I'm not talking about doing 46. But if the uh, if the law of the land sets a speed limit up and it's 55, then I think you should stay pretty close to it. And uh, if it's 65, I think you ought to stay pretty close to it. And what, whatever it is, you know, if they say that if the bus flips that little yellow thing out, you ought to stop. I think you, you should stop. And I believe that they can show statistics to show that uh, people that don't are more, much more apt to have accidents than others. But uh, I have problems from a Christian standpoint of just flagrantly disobeying those laws. And I'm not, I'm not talking about every little minded point on it because... The law itself doesn't claim that this is the absolute perfect speed, but you've got to draw a line somewhere. And so they draw it at whatever they do at that point. Well, then if a person gets enough over that, that we know that once you get more than five miles over that, if there's a policeman around, there's a chance you'll get a ticket. And if you're 15 miles over it, real good chance. Well, somebody that regularly gets over that, I'd say that, you know, that if he does that on a regular basis, the consequences will be there. That sooner or later, they're going, they're going to come. But uh, I think he makes it clear in the 13th chapter of Romans that we are to obey the laws of the land. And even to the point of paying taxes that we might differ with or things of that nature.